Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear Cast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. And welcome in. You found us. We're glad to have you here. Welcome back. It's another edition of Let's Hear It. So glad you could join us. Hope you're happy, safe, secure doing good things with your time. And Mr. Brown, as always, good to see you as well. Doing good things with your time? Yeah, like listen to Let's Hear It. (laughs) Going for a walk, cleaning the house. What are you, my productivity coach? (laughs) (laughs) Spending some time in the gym, just reflecting. That's That's what I do. And listening to Let's Hear It. That's what's happening. Hi, Kirk. How are you doing? I'm I'm good. I'm very good. Uh, I really appreciate- I'm doing good things with my time. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. (laughs) Clearly- because you've got another one for us. Tell us about who we're going to hear from today. I, I can't. This, okay. This is this has got to be the beginning. Calm down. It's okay. You'll blow a gasket. You're not. It will. You'll be end up not doing good things with your time. This is the beginning. I feel like of a multi-part series of conversations we need to have on Let's Hear. It. Let me just say that. It's okay. Because this is a this is a mighty one. It's thank a mighty for, discussion. Thank you for committing me to more work. <laughs> As always. As always. So my guest today is Jasmine Banks. Yes. Who's the executive director of Uncoke My Campus which is an organization that's working to protect higher education from undue donor influence. And Coke isn't Coca-Cola. It's spelled K-O-C-H as in Coke Brothers, Coke stuff. Uh, she, uh, so she, she recently released a report that was called Coke-Funded Moral Panic, Ultra-Right Think Tanks and Critical Race Theory. So that's, and that got our, got our attention here at the at the global offices of Let's Hear It. And we, because we've been talking so much about communications and race and how people have been and the challenges that have been placed in front of folks. And now here we have somebody who's who's kind of calling it out, calling the question. And mm-hmm. we got excited about that and just had to speak to Jasmine Banks. So timely, so generous. Um as Jasmine describes herself in her bio, a first-generation high school and university graduate, she understands the critical role that all education plays in shaping our democracy. She's a mother of four, a passionate supporter of her queer Black community, and an eternal fan of Beyonce, according to her bio. This is Jasmine Banks on Let's Hear It. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Welcome to Let's Hear It. Oh boy, folks. This is going to be a good one. I'm so happy to introduce my guest today, Jasmine Banks, who's the executive director of Uncoke My Campus, which is an organization that's working to protect higher education from undue donor influence. Jasmine, thank you again for for coming. Why don't you give us a little intro to Uncoke My Campus? Thank you so much for having me. Um, As you said, my name is Jasmine Banks. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm coming to you from beautiful Arkansas, which is 
the Cherokee, Muscogee, Cato Nation uh, folks. Uh, so Uncook My Campus is a, you know, started ultimately as a student campaign that grew into something so much bigger, but the ultimate intention of Uncook My Campus is to understand that there is a political strategy by Charles Koch and his broader network, um, a, a loose configuration of think tanks and academics and lobbyists and corporations to utilize the institution of higher education as a site of idea reproduction, because they understand that the material outcomes of our lawmaking, whether it's cultural or codified, um, that they all start within higher education at the university campus. And so, for the last 50 years, Charles Koch and his uh, cadre of wealthy radical capitalists, uh, they like to call themselves free market economics and libertarians. I see it as a form of radical racialized capitalism. They've been making investments underneath the guise of uh, philanthropy, the 501c3 designation. And whether there's direct strings attached or implied strings attached, the material outcomes of all of their political activity in private and for, or excuse me, for public and private universities is to, you know, basically roll back uh, any kind of progress we've made and to advance a very social, economic, regressive agenda. So UNCOKE organized students, faculties, community members, and folks who care about preserving um, higher education to make a better world uh, rather than protect corporate private interests. Well, you know, this is such an interesting conversation because it really brings together this notion of narrative, kind of controlling the narrative, and the role of philanthropy to advance or to, in some instances, thwart social causes. Yeah. I was having this conversation with my pal and co-conspirator, Kirk Brown, about this about this notion of critical race theory, because we have been reading the paper and seeing all these things about how the, the right is attempting to create, basically take the idea of critical race theory and make it a problem. Mm -hmm. And as, as we were having this conversation, lo and behold, a piece by you pops up in The Nation called The Radical Capitalist Behind the Critical Race Theory Fuhrer, How a Dark Money Mogul Bankrolled an AstroTurf Backlash. And which drove us to your report called Coke Funded Moral Panic, Ultra-Right Think Tanks and Critical Race Theory. So <laughs> as, as someone who's, I, I don't tend to have the first idea first, you were way ahead of us. I mean, obviously there are there had to be something behind this, and lo and behold, there's lots behind this. Can but I would like to back up there for the for those of folks out there who are are not really read into this conversation. Can you start with talking about a little bit about what critical race theory is, and then take us into w how has it become twisted into something that people are saying is is uh, you know you can take us to to where that's going to go. Yeah, well, certainly I'm not the critical race theory expert, although, um, you know, as a black queer uh, indigenous woman in Arkansas with multiple different identities, I appreciate the importance of critical race theory as a framework and analysis for how structural uh, oppression operates. But Kimberly Crenshaw should definitely be the people, the, the person that folks look up around critical race theory. Um, but as much as I understand it from a lay perspective is that really it is an analytical lens for the law and for critiquing structural power and systemic power. Um, what I do know is that critical race theory is not taught in schools. Um, and that's where um, this really powerful tactic and narrative shift is, right? That 
anything that these bases want to use as a moral panic becomes whatever it is, right? DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, um, social emotional learning is another thing that they latch on to, or gender affirming is another thing that they latch on to. And so ultimately, in this context, this conversation, critical race theory is a Trojan horse uh, for dog whistling to very specific base that will create some panic and destabilize um, efforts in public education. Um, so it, hopefully did that, <laughs> did I hit the nail on the head for you? Yes. Well, uh, obviously what we have been, we, I think we also mentioned this on the show recently that after the, the murder of George Floyd, an understanding of structural racism has even references to it have mm -hmm. exploded that people are now kind of putting to, <laughs> took for a hundred years to put two and two together, but it equals four, which is that that structural racism has had this incredibly insidious effect on every part of our culture. And mm -hmm. but my my reading of, of critical race theory is that that stuff has become kind of in, in adopted into that structural racism has become adopted into the law and obviously into all of the yeah. social um, institutions that we understand. And as, again, if you were paying attention at all in the last year, you've seen how people are starting to, people are, are starting to, to understand that structural racism is, is driving so much of our, our daily experience and that we've got to do something about it if we want to live in a just society. And apparently that's a problem. <laughs> well, for a property supremacist like Charles Koch, it is a problem, right? If you believe that, um, you, you know, the market fixes everything and if you have wealth, you should be able to control everything and you want to capture institutions, then something like critical race theory provides an, an, an analytical um, narrative antidote to this idea that the markets are fair, right? If you talk about that the market was actually, the economy was built off of black and indigenous death and suffering, and that war um, is you know, needed to continue to create wealth for the, the ultra wealthy, those are all things that a, a very um, laser sharp uh, analysis with critical race theory can provide you. And so who wants that out in the masses, right? Like, and the, the fact of the matter is in all of the primary sources in any place in space where you look at Charles Koch and the folks he's closest with their analysis, they understand it's not popular. Think back to For the People Act and Jane Mayer's breaking piece about how Koch operatives were talking about, well, in our marketing and our messaging, turns out people are supportive of billionaires not buying elections. And so we've got to figure out a different tactic. And so they said an under the dome tactic and killing it under the dome. And so they do their research. They understand that if the masses truly get what their strategy is, that they will not have support for it. So they have to astroturf, um, they have to utilize disinformation, and then they have to appeal to authoritarian uh, movements and these very populist movements in order to get their, their version of the world realized, right? They're organizing in the same way we're organizing, um, but they're only organizing for a small number of folks to survive and experience a vibrant, beautiful life. Um, I would say it's a soul barren life. Um, I think there's some spiritual implications for why they have the worldviews that they have. Um, but ultimately, it's it's just about control and domination at the cost of everyone else. I heard a, a quote by Anand Jirdadas, who's a, a commenter on, on philanthropy. He said, I think we shouldn't have any billionaires. We should try that. And if it doesn't work out, we can go back to having billionaires. But the... <laughs> 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 yeah, who's signing up for that experiment? I need, I need, I need, I, we need to do that. What is that? 
let's just landscape it real quick. We'll get a quick da- data set. We'll run the messaging. That's right. A lot of people out there is like, you know, what we really need is more billionaires. It's just not <laughs> enough billionaires because they're, they're really good. Can, can you talk, Jasmine, about how you came to this work? What is, what is your personal journey that got you to this place right now? You know, I, I grew up in Oklahoma, a single mom. I actually grew up in this place called the Charles Page Family Village, which is an interesting experiment of what happens when people who have massive wealth actually use all of their wealth to transform. Um, and so there's this man named Charles Page. He had this incredible endowment and trust fund, and he was a Christian and believed that the true gospel is taking care of the widow and the orphan. So he created this multi-housing um, place. It spans acres that if you are widowed or divorced with two or more children, you can live in this facility and it's just like a duplex, um, multiple duplexes until your youngest child graduates high school. You never pay rent, you never pay utilities. You're just asked to have housing inspections so that you're keeping the property clean. You share cleaning up the grounds, like taking out the trash and keeping things clean. And there's no alcohol and no men after midnight. Um, Yeah, it was an interesting place, but... (laughs) I had never had a permanent home up until that moment. And so growing up homeless, I experienced like this whole juxtaposition of what happens when the rise of corporations and neoliberalism sell something to you, right? Like this belief of if you just make good grades, you just go to college and get student loans to go to college, you can get a job and be better, right? So fast forward to now, I am in... in, massively in debt, had moved into movement work, felt the pressures of a nonprofit industrial complex and not doing well. And so I was like, I'll just go out on my own. I love comms. I love messaging. I'm going to apply to this little as a a digital contractor for Uncoke My Campus. And I'll do corporate accountability and undue donor influence because it has nothing to do with my real life. It'll never have any implications, right? Because I was doing racial justice work, and I was doing maternal mental health um, and reproductive rights work. And it was just taxing as a person who has my background and my story. It felt like always dealing with my own trauma. So I applied, got the job, and took two weeks to read all of their reports, all of the work, and I'd never heard of Charles Cook before. And I was like, how is it I thought I was going to just continue to do good work that was sort of removed from the real implications of my life. And I happened on like the death star of all of the things that I had been organizing to intervene in in other places, whether it was climate or repro rights or whatever, all has Charles Koch's fingerprints on it. Um, There's not a voter suppression or an education issue or a clean water issue that somehow is not connected to his efforts to privatize and sort of create this free market, you know, utopia for himself. And so that's sort of the vast picture of how I, how I got into this. And I always tell people that so much about the material conditions of my life bring me in a direct conflict with the world that, that Charles Koch is trying to create. And it's one of those fights for survival, right? If he gets his way, people like me and my family will not exist. And so, yeah, I offered the example of Charles Page versus the Charles Koch is Charles Page believed that like, all of his wealth was to help everyone else live and survive. And his generosity and true philanthropy was the thing that helped me get to this place where I have some kind of privileges, some kind of like comfort um, was because I had a home that my mom didn't have to pay for. And I got to be able to go to university. I was the first person in my family to graduate high school. 
let alone get to college and then a master's degree. And it was all because of that living situation. And they reversed over here. And this other Charles story is that like, you have, we should all have to be going into debt that we should all be, you know, relying on private interests to help us see our way through. Right. So these really interesting moments and these vector points in my life converge. And now here I am throwing rocks at billionaires from Arkansas. A tale of two Charleses. That's so interesting that you are. Well, OK, can we talk a little bit about why higher education for you is that that crux, that central yeah. operating system yeah. for for this work? Because you could pick it a million entry points to mm -hmm. how are we going to shift the culture? How are we going to create justice? And you're working in, uh, on, on improving higher education. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, well, you know, I think there's a lot of conversation around the neoliberal university and how it actually, you know, reproduces class struggle and stratifies us and creates more oppression. Um, but what I know about education is that it is a, a site for transformation. It can be reimagined to be the common good that it ought to be, right? It's a public good for us. We ought to be going into these institutions thinking through ideas together, wrestling with these things, and then producing something that's the betterment for not just ourselves, but our communities. And right now, it's just a place of like creating administration and creating workers or creating bosses. And so I really believe that a progressive future, a world um, that has, you know, a beloved state and all the things that I'm hoping for and my colleagues and co-conspirators are working for requires education being protected as a public institution um, forever. And yeah, so that's the short answer. <laughs> if you were a betting person, yeah. would you say that 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 is a possibility? That's something that's in within our sights. Are you confident or hopeful that we can help shape education in such a way that it really does build lives? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Or else I wouldn't keep having children and putting them in public education. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so there's that. But also... It's important for us to think about our opposition and their messages and narratives and, and why education is so important for them. So much of the utilizing education and controlling it and privatizing it and then using it as a site of reproduction was inspired for Charles Koch during, you know, the James McGill Buchanan and Milton Friedman years. You know, the Powell memo is also sort of woven in there and understanding that many of these folks have decided to privatize and capture education because it was a direct resp response to Brown versus Board of Education, right? If it's not that big of a deal, right? If it's not valuable, why do you have, you know, generations of white nationalists and neo-Confederates working really hard to resegregate? Um, and they're and they're doing so through school choice. They're doing so through like this idea of charter. And, oh, well, this actually helps Black people because then they have more choices. But then if you use critical race theory for an analysis, you understand that actually it doesn't. It, it has the opposite effect. Um, and so, yeah, I think that people ought to have, you know, beautiful choices. And, and I think that if folks want private choices to exist, that's fine. But let's make sure that the, the, the public choices that we have are fully supported and they haven't been deregulated and gutted in such a way that it sets up this false comparison of competition, right? Let's make sure that individual folks aren't subsidizing what the state and like federal level should be providing for us as a public good with our own private debt. 
you know, those are the things that need to be transformed. And I think we're on that way, right? Even with Biden's administration recently canceling student debt for folks who have severe disabilities that keep them from meaningful income. By the way, Biden could cancel student debt today and ought to do so, right? <laughs> like, so, so I absolutely believe that the institution of education and learning is a powerful, powerful piece of our puzzle of a more beautiful, just society. Well, we're going to take a quick break with Jasmine Banks, the executive director of Uncoke My Campus. We'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. And we are back with Jasmine Banks, the executive director of Uncoke My Campus. I, I was okay. I had a, did a rant. I, I was ranting. I have a tendency to rant a little bit when I saw a, a university talking about how it is a selective university. And it just got my blood boiling because, yeah, sure. If you had, if you grew up and you didn't have to work two jobs as a kid, if you had tutors, if you got to take the test prep things, if you got to, you had a, a, an uncle or a parent or something went to the university, then that university and it picks you, then it's selective. And to me, that's just like these are these are are restrictive universities because they are restricted to people who have had these opportunities to be able to do all those things that they got to do to get in. How do we undo that? How do we help? How do we help a these institutions of higher education understand that there is no such thing as selectivity? That and and how do we establish this framework that that everyone should have whatever the op- an, a true opportunity to mm-hmm. succeed mm-hmm. is am i just getting crazy or is there <laughs> is there anything in that that's that's a really really big question your question brings up for me curiosity that i've had around how the corporatization of higher education um particularly you know post Reagan years, as we see the rise of corporate power and monopolies and all of these things happen, how that's being reproduced within higher education, how the number of administration administrators like balloon versus like faculty, how the conversations around union and labor and all of these different things, that that's all a part of the constellation of this conversation. And so I think your question points more toward this neoliberal university model that's highly corporate, that wants to reproduce class oppression through assigning people on these like tracks of identity. And they always originate with who had access to the test prep, as you said, who it's not about actual like learning and intellect and skill and exploration. It's just about who, who, who had a you know warm bed and food at night. Um, and you now you get to be the boss of something. And so I look toward experiments in education, like Maroon University, for example, um, doing really, really cool things and, or like the justice portal doing work to figure out how are how do we create these points of intervention, whether it's in like material ways or narrative shifts that change how the university functions? 
Um, I think about folks in some of our organizers who are working on getting open source uh, textbooks so that folks aren't having to pay for textbooks and they're sharing PDFs. Um, I'm thinking about popular education and how folks are sort of like querying the professor-student relationship and really trying to you know, change how we learn and, and grow together. And I think the more and more we do that, then we in, we have this inside outside strategy, right? Of people are building new things on the outside like Maroon University. And then those who are embedded on the inside are creating this critical mass of transformation that then when the standard is a, a pro-privatized, pro-corporate education, it no longer stands, right? It's no longer desirable. And that's long-term culture shift and understanding how racial capitalism is being reproduced within higher education and then be accountable for that and make and make changes but there's no group more invested in the idea of racial capitalism staying firmly in place with the university than Charles Koch and the folks that he's in deep relationship with I want to go back to this narrative shift thing that that the the backlash against uh, critical race theory that that we've seen in the last year or two and as as you noted the uh, um, Coke Network has has funded communications and narrative cha- narrative work and all this other stuff to advance this idea that that looking at our that that looking at our race history is somehow not a, a legitimate lens. And uh, so there was this guy Christopher Rufo, who is this blogger in Seattle who somehow rose to the top as somebody who was a an opponent of critical race theory. He called it the perfect villain. And he has managed to use language and and communications in a way that has deeply destabilizing and troubling effects. What what if anything can we I don't can can we learn about how to define a narrative in a way that promotes and progresses rather than to define a narrative in a way that, as you had said before creates either creates doubt or a small cadre of opponents that is enough to destabilize a movement. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to be really sophisticated in how we have this part of the conversation, because if you ask representatives of any of Charles Koch's uh, directly funded entities like Charles Koch Foundation or Stand Together, which tries to paint itself as a progressive, whatever, um, uh, you know, uh, spoiler alert, they're not. They're doing the exact same thing that Charles Koch Foundation did. Um, They would say that they don't support the banning of ideas. It's against their like faux libertarian front to support banning any idea. They would say that. But the reality is, Though they don't directly say, I'm funding this to support the banning of ideas, they support all of the bases um, and the folks who do ban ideas, right? So it's like the difference between, it's this um, communications trap that if people aren't more sophisticated in how they view it, they that they always win this ground, right? So it's like saying like, I didn't rob the bank, I just bought them the van and the guns and I helped them print the map, but I didn't, I didn't do it, right? So it's not my fault. Um, so for, 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 you know, moving into the Chris Rufo thing, which Lord have mercy, I never thought I would have to hear that person's name so much. Um, but it's just, it's a Trojan horse, right? It's the fear, um, that if you can, without directly saying, I'm afraid that the white race is going to be destroyed, like the whole Aryan fear of we're going to lose this, you know, white society, you can say it without saying it, then you have power with conservative evangelical white nationalists um, 
movements. And so that's really what that's about. Um, I think our work, other than understanding um, that this is a thing that appeals, is figuring out how we, with, with principle and rigor, speak to the true believers in a way that doesn't isolate them, but gives them an opportunity to belong. Um, and again, I, I'm not talking about holding white fragility or honoring the, the needs and well-being of like flagrant racists above black and brown lives. But the work here is to make, you know, to make the idea of coming away from that undesirable. It's to say that we actually will create a side of belonging where you can belong in your full self. Because right now, these masses of folks, they, they're afraid of not belonging. And so they're drinking in this myth of be like the billionaires. This is the idea of ultimate freedom, that if you have any identity other than like your very whitewashed, ahistorical identity, if you have to accept that maybe even if it wasn't your choice, you were born into a legacy of violence by just a proxy of who you are as a person in the world, that's like a lot to hold. And so why critical race theory becomes so powerful, this perfect enemy situation, is that it allows the cognitive dissonance where you don't have to do your internal conscious work, you don't have to grow, and you don't have to face the deepest fear that most of us have, which we like are inherently unworthy, right? This to me is, yes, it's a political conversation of like tactics and organizing and communication, but ultimately this is like, what my black indigenous elders would say is like, it's a soul problem. It is people who have been um, disconnected from their humanity and they only know violence. And so how do you keep someone, um, how do you hold someone with grace and care and challenge them to move into a place of accountability if all they've known is violence, if they're just such, like I said, this true believer kind of posture? Well, we know if someone's in a cult, telling them they're in a cult is not gonna help them. No, but creating places of belonging and care and staying in relationship with them does help them. So I guess in a way, um, what I'm beating around the bush to say is that it's, a, it's an abolitionist future. It's a vision where there's not punishment, where we talk about impact and accountability. We have a lot of libertarian trolls who on our on our Twitter and they'll, they'll come to us and be like, okay, congratulations, trying to find utopia. So you're saying you're not evil. And for us, it's not a conversation of good or evil. As Prentice Hempel says, we are striving to let go of the idea of innocence versus guilt. This is about impact and transformation. And, and the reality is that like Charles Koch and the folks who he appeals to, their impact create deepen, like pathways to deepen oppression. And so we, if we're trying to do something different, have to completely reimagine how we go about doing this work with them. Well, you mentioned g giving everybody a sense of belonging. We've um, spoken to John Powell on this show, yeah. and he's, he is a friend, and and uh, I, I really look up to him. I, I certainly see that 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 is a, an important way through. Yeah. And I guess the bigger question for all of us is how do we create belonging among people with whom, on the surface, we really disagree on, or at least we we disagree to some actions. But I mean, if if we understand that we're all members of the human race, and if we are going to survive as a human race, we're going to have to figure out a way to come together across these differences, which is, again, the center of, of much of what John talks about. Where do you see that? Where, where do you see the first step at that? How do you bring somebody who might be susceptible to, you know, a, a RUFO and help them understand that there's a, there's a broader, better community to belong to? 
Well, I mean, for us the, at, at Uncoke, right, we're the disrupt part, the intervene and disrupt part of the um, total landscape. Um, but one of the things that we have been quietly building, and I, this is not public, this is the first time I'm saying this, and I'll give you the, the tea here, is we've created another entity, which will be the new home of Uncoke called the Common Good Generation. Um, and so disrupting and intervening is so, so important because there are some who are going to be like, whoa, I didn't know what I was doing. Thank you for telling me. And then they go a different direction, right? But for others, it's a longer game. And so the vision of the common good generation is to reimagine and transform institutions of public education. So they serve the people um, and they become gems of, of our communities. And so I think that for me is the answer of like, how do we invite these folks into space, not based on our shared oppression, but like our shared vision of the future, which includes safety, dignity, and belonging. And so I think for these Rufo people, it's it's about being consistent with our messaging. It's about being like being cohesive as well. And then just it's a lot, it's protracted, it's long term. Many of them want to have different ways, but they don't have exposure to different ways. And the only way to do that is to take the risk of like being vulnerable and being present with them. And so I often am in the same places and spaces as uh, Coke funded folks. I, you know, have had relationships with academics who took Coke funding with the intention of we don't you know, breaking relationship and isolating is only actually creating more of the conditions that help Charles Koch's ultimate world come to vision, right? But there are some people that it's not my ministry to love in that way. And Rufo might be, might, might be one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Outside the boundaries of the ministry. Well, yeah. I, um, I want to be in your ministry, Jasmine. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your work. And I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm looking forward to seeing what what you continue to work on and hope we stay in touch. Uh, well, I hope it was useful and that your listeners enjoy it. And um, I'm, I'm always open for feedback and critique and um, assessments. So folks can definitely reach out to me if they have ideas. But I hope that ultimately folks are taking from this that the, you know that these these flashpoints where we experience these deep culture wars they're intentional they're not because of the people on the grounds like we are not in our communities looking at ways to fight each other it's a very very small percentage of ultra wealthy people with a lot of power who are invested in the idea of continuing to create these schisms between us because if we're fighting each other then we don't we don't have the space and time and forethought to change the systems that they're benefiting from. Um, and I absolutely believe it's possible for folks to transform and to step into centered accountability. Um, and I'm just looking forward to the days where the piece that I wrote in the nation is not necessary. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> I've got a K through 12 one coming up. I've got a repro rights. Um, the Coke network just you know, paid to ban gender affirming care through think tanks here in Arkansas, which really hit home for me. We had to organize to protect our oldest daughter because they the the Heritage Foundation tried to move their agenda here in Arkansas. None of our legislators cared about gender affirming medical care until Heritage came to them, and then suddenly they banned our health care for our kids. And thankfully, we've got to stay, and we're doing some base building on the ground. But I just want everyone to understand that, like, we're not in this moment where 
um, we hate each other more or our differences are dividing us deeper. We're in a moment where systemic structural power understands it's on its final breath and other worlds are being birthed. And this tension and this constriction, this conflict is calling us to get to know each other better. Um, so anyway, thank you so much uh, for creating a platform where we can share that message. Well, thank you for sharing it. Jasmine Banks, the executive director of Uncoke My Campus. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And we're back. Okay, so I have to say, this is one of the first times I would I just felt a deep sense of frustration with our podcast format. Because this this is a 30-minute conversation. It's totally Great. Jasmine. Oh my gosh. I was listening to it thinking, <laughs> I'm so grateful that ja there are people like Jasmine Banks in the world, you know, doing this work. And there are so many layers of this conversation. Same that you can go through. And I think that you did an excellent job of sort of covering the train, but everything from Jasmine's personal story that brings Jasmine to this work, let alone the sort of research that brought her to the Koch brothers and thinking about that work, and then the role of issues like critical race theory. <laughs> How did it feel for you going through this interview? Because it was it was quite a journey. And I feel like this is chapter one of like a 10 chapter book is, is on, honestly my feeling about it. There's so much in here. Well, I always like to know the people who are doing the work and I like to know what their story is because I think I learn, you learn as much about an issue from the, uh, from the story of the person as you do from the study of the issue. It's so brave to be taking on the Coke yes. machine yeah, and to do it with the kind of passion that, that Jasmine brings to it that I, I'm just really I'm inspired by it. And it's fascinating because you, you and I have had this conversation. I've had the conversation with a million people where you, where you start looking at this backlash against critical race theory, which, mm -hmm. you know, explains how social and economic differences between the races are created by the legal system <laughs> rather than by the actions of individuals or psychological mm -hmm. factors. And so you go, oh, wait a minute. So the legal system is now the thing that we use to hold up those institutions that were created through uh, racist mm -hmm. uh, systems, slavery, mm -hmm. slavery, slavery, segregation, mass incarceration, the whole thing. And the idea that all of a sudden somebody digs up an old textbook that that uh, looks at the effect of race and racism on our legal system and other aspects of our, our society and... <laughs> And now finds that's the 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 demon, that's the <laughs> the thing that we get that that you know people on the right get to hate, and then those folks get funded, and then they end up on Fox News, and all of a sudden you go, oh, this is how you manufacture difference, hatred, and all that stuff to to try and and expose that. I think is brave and it's exciting and also teaches all of us who work in communications about how that stuff happens and then hopefully what you get to do about it. So define this phrase for us, narrative shift, Just define it. What is it? How would you characterize it? Because it's at the heart of this conversation. And I think it's so interesting to hear about the work that Uncokeman Campus and others are doing to live in this world of narrative shift and how difficult it must be. So how would you define it? How would you characterize it? Uh, so everybody, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Define being. Um, yeah, right. Define well, is. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so, right. 
depends on what the meaning of the word is. Is yeah, um, right. the, so narrative. So this is interesting because on the among other things, I'm on the board of the narrative initiative, so mm-hmm. I should be able to define what narrative shift is or what mm-hmm. narrative is. I mean, mm-hmm. narrative is is the stories we tell, and when in in my own mind and, I, and my own thinking on this has has evolved this week. Hmm. What I think that what you're the goal of of a narrative is to create or establish a norm, which mm-hmm. is that on on any issue, you know, you could have a, a norm that that everybody should that we should remove all the barriers to success, that everyone that equality of opportunity has to mean just that. And you do that through a series of stories or other ways that that help create that norm. And I think mm-hmm. that when we try to identify or create narratives that establish these norms in people's minds, that that's how you start to shift how people act, what they do, what their politics are, and that sort of thing. It actually changes your brain chemistry, as we, as Dan Kahneman has, has written in the past. And that's what Travian Shorters takes advantage yep. of, understanding yep. how the, the, even the words you use or the way you think about things changes your own perspective about somebody in unconscious ways. So, yeah. so the benefit of, of changing narrative is in changing these norms and these unconscious views of things. And the act of it, this story that you tell, becomes a story that we can all relate to, connect with, and understand. So somebody from Coke Enterprises, this is, a, this is a, just, a, just a crazy idea. Totally, if total fiction. But if somebody from Coke Enterprises was willing to come onto our podcast and talk about their strategies, not their goals and aspirations, not their values, but their strategies for doing narrative shift from where they're coming from, would we listen to them? And here's why I ask. Here's why I ask because this <laughs> Jasmine said something so interesting in your discussion where. She said, you know, I had been doing all this work and doing all this thinking, and I found the Koch brothers at the heart of all these issues I cared about. You know, they were at the heart of climate. They were at the heart of education and reform. They were at the heart of all this intersection of all these issues. And I was thinking about this. Here's this enterprise that huddled in a room 50 years ago, which is another part of why this is a multi-chapter conversation. Because So what, what do they have going on here? They have time. They have strategy. And then they have this approach that says, you know what? We're not going to knock down any one of these things individually. We're going to do something with narrative that wraps it all up in a bundle so that if, regardless of what perspective of progressive and social change you're talking about, you're going to run into our barriers and obstacles. And I just think that there's something insidious, awful, horrible, but also just kind of profoundly interesting about that sensibility. What do you think about that? Yeah, I don't want to talk to them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I'm t- I don't need to. It's the strategy. It's about the strategy. I, yeah, I, I get it. I totally get it. I understand. I, totally I, I, I don't have any, any room in my soul with left of my Jasmine called the them the Death Star. Charles Koch was the Death Star at the center of all these issues. And it just, it's a really interesting sensibility, right? Yeah, that- I mean, it's true. You, you study what has been effective, particularly things that have been effective against you, and you understand. But the other thing is that the 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 left the brain of 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 the left and the brain of the right is different. Yeah, and I know, like I, you know, like the I don't get too into this, but the idea mm-hmm. is let's put it this way: it is so much easier to sow discontent and to and to engage on people's fears 
than it is to build and weave and and work towards hope. And what what, what you know what I think progressive institutions are trying to do and people are trying to do the latter, which is harder to do. Mm-hmm. You, I could start a fight with anybody at any time by sowing discontent. Uh, that's easy. Mm-hmm. And it, all you have to do is de- destabilize. And so if you're mm-hmm. a big industrialist and you uh, and your job is to keep people discontented so that they'll buy your stuff or that they won't do what you need to do in order to, to deal with climate change or you won't do what you need to do in order to address the problems of racism, it's really easy, re- relatively easy to sow mm-hmm. discontent. It's mm-hmm. very hard to govern. And sometimes it's even hard to win electoral electoral majorities, which is why folks are making it harder to vote, is why right. they're making it harder to, you know, to do all the redistricting in such a way. They're keeping them, you know, you're gerrymandering the districts and all that other crap. So that's, that you know, that's easy. Yeah. And, and so... <laughs> That's, I, well, like, I don't need to know how to do that. I know how to do that. I just don't <laughs> because that's not what I'm about. So maybe that's my, my way. If somebody was on the other side creating some sort of uh, new wonderful vision for their terrible world, that mm-hmm. I'd want, I'd be more interested in. Yeah. <laughs> well, I like Jasmine described it as moral panic. They, they inspire moral panic that's with right. the way that they were. Totally and, right. And just, yeah. And it's so heartbreaking. Um, so there's so many pieces to get into on this, and I, this is why I think this is a multi-part conversation. But um, I do want to leave you with, and, and by the way, you had a great Eric Brown moment in the conversation about selective versus restrictive universities. Oh yeah, and no, this that's, notion of the, yeah. the very selective gets to go to the selective schools, and yeah. everybody else gets there. And and Jasmine, I, this perspective that you know, pub, education is a public good. And we're privatizing this public good through this enormous debt that people are having to carry as private debt. It's just there's so much nuance and rich uh, fodder for conversation there. But let's leave on this notion about critical race theory. A Christopher Rufo, R-U-F-O, uh, and, and just this notion that you can invent a conflict and critical race theory becomes the perfect villain and an entire messaging apparatus grows up to carry that forward. This is, I feel like just deconstructing that process is worthy of multiple rounds of conversation. Rufo. <laughs> I don't want to talk about Rufo either, but yeah, that was it. Like easy. Here's some schmo up in Seattle who picks on a thing. They fill him with money and they put him on Vox. And all of a sudden he, he picked himself a good villain. And that was that. Mm. Well, and there's a great article in The New Yorker um, about that work from from last June. Right. And it's titled How a Conservative Activist Invented the Conflict Over Critical Race Theory and uh, and is a conversation well worth having. Well, Jasmine Banks and the uncokemycampus.org, thank you so much for your work. Um, you can follow them on Twitter at uncoke, K-O-C-H, uncoke campus. Um, and Jasmine, just what? What a warrior! You know what? Just terrific work. What a what a leader! And I just so excited to follow you and all of your work, and just so deeply appreciative of everything you're bringing to it. It's so exciting. Thank you, Jasmine. You're a rock star. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time, and let's hear it. Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today, or people we should have on this show, and that definitely includes yourself. 
and we'd like to thank John Beltrano, our enthusiastic production assistant. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. Our sponsors, the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. And please check out Lumina's terrific podcast, Today's Students, Tomorrow's Talent, and you can find that at luminafoundation.org. We certainly thank today's guest, and of course, all of you. And most importantly, thank you, Mr. Brown. No, 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 no. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Brown. Okay, everybody. Until next time. Let's hear it.